Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. So 1 Samuel 25, and let's stand as we show honor to the word of the Lord. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a uh, Calabite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did, did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they, saw, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and, they, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made, the, made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, 
and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. <clears throat> Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have positioned us here today to, to hear your word um, and to be instructed by your word. I uh, just ask, Lord, that you would position our hearts to hear it and uh, receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It's good to uh, be gathered with you here this morning and be able to share uh, God's word. And I just wanted to uh, start by uh, thanking this congregation uh, for your prayers and financial support. I want to thank you on behalf of the First Nation people of Northwest Ontario and just for giving them the opportunity to hear the, the good news of Jesus um, uh, that they can hear because you've prayed and, and sent us to them. And so I just want to express appreciation on their behalf and also say thank you ourselves for all the ways that you guys encourage us and, and pray for us and even sometimes in really um, unexpected ways. So um, I want to start by just setting a little context for this passage. It's kind of a rather big section of scripture. And so this, this chapter is actually sandwiched between um, uh, two incidents of Saul trying to kill David. So he relented from killing to trying to kill David just before this, and he's going to pick it up and try to do it again in the very next chapter. And, and, uh, and so God had given Saul to the Israelites as king because they wanted a king like everyone else. And so, but God was their king. So God was kind of hurt or offended that his people would want someone else to lead them besides him. And so God gave them what they wanted. They, he gave them Saul, and Saul was a wicked king. And, and Saul kind of becomes a taker. He's, he's impatient, he's cowardly, and he's going to establish his kingdom by his own hand. And so I don't know if any of you guys read the reading that Pastor Matt sent on Friday, but in chapter 18 is where he really kind of begins to try to kill David, and that's after David has killed Goliath. He has um, David come and basically play, play music for him to calm him because God sends this wicked spirit on, on Saul, and he's kind of tormented by it, and the only thing that can kind of calm him down is David to play this instrument. But on multiple occasions, uh, Saul tries to kill David. And there's another incident where Saul actually was supposed to wait seven days for Samuel to get there, and they were going to uh, make these sacrifices. And Saul waits to the seventh day, but Samuel hasn't showed up. So he actually says, you know what, just bring me some animals. I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice them. And then not too long after he sacrifices him, Samuel shows up and he's like, what have you done? And, and basically, uh, uh, Samuel tells Saul that God's going to tear the kingdom away from him because Saul tries to grab a hold of Samuel as he's walking away. And 
and God said, he's gonna, this is what God's going to do to you. As he grabs Samuel's cloak and tears it, he said, he's going to tear the kingdom away from you. And so David, or Saul sees David kind of coming up through the ranks, and actually uh, God sends Samuel to anoint a new king, and it's the eighth son of Jesse, David. And so at this point, Saul's out for David because he knows he's going to be the next king and tries to kill him multiple times. But David actually has Saul in the cave right before this, and his guys are like, here's your chance. Here's your chance to, to um, kill Saul and take, take the kingship. And he said, I, I, can't, I can't reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David, so all along we see Saul trying to take, and David is basically like, I have to wait. Like, it's not for me to take. It's, it's for God to give to me. And so this story here is kind of sandwiched between, between that. And so I want to kind of look at three things this morning, or four things. And, and uh, you'll hear them several times. But the first one is, when we are vulnerable and expect help and don't receive it, we can become bitter takers, like Saul. Because we have this expectation that someone's going to help us and they don't. And so that's, that's when we're most vulnerable to, to sin that way. And secondly, someone else must bear our shame. We need a mediator. Thirdly, our eyes are open through the petitions of a mediator. It takes somebody else praying on our behalf to help us to see ways that we've become a taker. We've taken things into our own hands. And then finally, that we can't defend our own honor or save ourselves by our own hand. Like, we need someone else to do that for us. So... Those are the four things that we're going to be looking at. And so really, in 1 Samuel 25 here, what we're dealing with, and it's right off the bat, is there's going to be a contrast. There's a contrast between Nabal and Abigail, and that's really set in the context of the whole book. That's really a contrast between Saul and David, so how Saul goes about doing things, how David goes about doing things. And so we see... David is in a desperate situation. He's far south of Judah at this point. He's out in the desert. He's got about 600 men, and Saul's been chasing him with like 3,000 soldiers. They're outnumbered five to one. And he comes, um, he finds this flock, these flocks out in the wilderness, and it happens to belong to this man named Nabal. And they're out there. It's the time for shearing, and it's the time for a festival. And it says here in verse 3, uh, now the man of the name, the now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife is Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. And so right there, we see a contrast between their character. And it also, it also interesting, interestingly mentions that he's a Calebite. And so a Caleb was uh, from the tribe of Judah, which is the same tribe as David. So here's David in desperate situation. Is probably running out of food, and he comes out to this country, and he comes, he finds this rich man, right? And he has this expectation: this guy's going to help me because he's well off. He's he's one of my kinsmen, right? He's one of my kinsmen, and I've shown him honor. I've shown him honor. So David actually, we see David kind of falling back into that shepherding role. We see him taking care of this guy's. He's protecting these flocks in the wilderness with his men. And he sends this delegation of guys, right? Ten of them. 
to pay honor to Nabal and basically tell him who we are, tell him what we've done. And, and he, he basically, this is an honor-shame culture. He's going through all the right protocols that you would approach somebody in honor to ask them for help. And he tells him to go up in verse 5, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. They're, they're representatives. They're ambassadors for David. And that's how you do it in, a, in an honor-shame culture. You don't go yourself. It's actually more honorable to send someone else. And so he does that. And so in David's mind, he's done all the right things. Um, and this guy's in a position to help him. And yet, he, instead, he shames David. Who's David? Like, who, who is this guy? Why should I help him? Like, he's just another guy that's broken away from his master, and now he thinks, I'm going to help him. I'm going to give to him what I prepared for, um, you know, my workers. And why should I give anything to David? And so David just, he flies off the handle, right? He's expecting this guy to help him, and he's just blind with rage. He's going he's gonna to not only kill him, he's going to kill all of his male servants. And he's going to defend his name. David's going to defend his name. He's going to defend his honor. You know what? He can take it from Saul. He can take it that he's being pursued by the king. But who's this guy? Like, I'm David. I've killed my ten thousands. And now I've come to my kinsmen, and he won't even help me in my time of need. And so, which is a complete foolish error on Nabal's part. David's already been anointed the next king at this point. And if Nabal knew anything at all, like... If he helps David in his, most, his hour of most desperate need, like what's, what's David going to do to honor him? Like he misses a golden opportunity, and instead he ticks off the most powerful, um, popular, and uh, yeah, the guy that killed his ten thousands and makes a huge mistake. And so, yeah, David's out for blood. And so, so... Somebody's got to do something about this, or, I mean, David's just going to kill a lot of people. And so the servants run. They see the whole thing happen. They know what Nabal's like. And so they go run to Abigail because she's wise and discerning, right? And because she's going to know what to do. And they basically said, hey, look, you know, David's men came, and Nabal, like, he just, he just berated David. Like, he totally shamed him, and now, now he's coming for us. What should we do? And so she makes preparations to send a gift ahead of her. Does this remind you guys of any other Bible story, like maybe in Genesis, of, of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob's afraid Esau is going to pay him back for Jacob stealing his blessing, so he sends all of his, all of his uh, stuff <laughs> ahead of him and his wives in order of how much he likes them, puts Rachel at the, <laughs> puts Rachel at the back, right? And then he comes last. And so what he's doing is he's sending a, a propitiation. A pr propitiation is just a gift that's going to take away the wrath of the, the anger of the person, right, that you're coming to. So here, send all this stuff, and then we'll come up, and then maybe by the time we get there, he's not going to be as mad as he was, and maybe he'll listen. And so she, she very wisely does that. And so it reminded me of a scripture in the New Testament with in John 1, 10 through 11, it reads, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
So in this instance, David is just, he's receiving the same treatment that Christ received. That he came to that which is his own and they received him not. And so, you know, we, we know that Jesus handled that pretty graciously, but David's out for blood. He's out for blood here. And, and so he's liable at this point to becoming a taker like Saul. He's going to take this into his own hand, and he's going to do something about it. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. It began with Eve. God made Adam and Eve king and queen of the world. And uh, rule it, have dominion over it. And, and it wasn't enough. Eve's going to take the one thing God says don't take. And she does. Her and Adam fall into sin. And it's just the same pattern just over and over and over again. Um, one huge instance was when Israel, the incident with the golden calf in the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for 40 days. The Israelites are like, what happened to this Moses guy that was leading us in? Has God left us out here to die? I'll tell you what. Let's make a God for ourselves. Let's make a God that will lead us, that will save us. Let's make salvation by our own hands. And Moses, you know the story. Moses comes down and he, he thinks there's a war in the camp, but there's a big party. And he gets totally ticked and he breaks the Ten Commandments, right? And because the people had replaced God with this golden image that, that was going to lead them and save them. And so over and over again, we just see the people of God not putting their faith in their God and taking matters into their own hand, being impatient, not waiting for the Lord. And I wanted to briefly share a story of a time that I became a taker. Let me get a drink here. So when I was a teenager, about, I was either 14 or 15, um, my brothers and I played a lot of sports. And, and I just want to start out by saying this story isn't to shame anyone, but it's just to kind of show how God's worked in my life and through different circumstances. Um, but we played a lot of sports, and uh, we were pretty competitive and stuff, but my dad would often come to the games, and he was super competitive too. And, but he was the kind of the dad that would often yell at the refs and the coaches and, and those sorts of things. And then my mom would always make us ride home with him after the game, at which point he would let us know all the, the ways that we had screwed up and talk about the coaches and the refs and whatnot. And, you know, that went on for years. And at one point, I just kind of, on this one day, we were just driving home. We'd been in the truck for a couple minutes, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I said, you know what, Dad, I'm so sick of this, like, having to hear this every time. And we're trying our hardest and it's never enough. And, and so I think that was the first time I ever stood up to my dad. And he told me to get out of the truck and walk home. And so I did. And he came back and looked for me. But I hid because I didn't want to deal with it. Like, I didn't want to. And I just became bitter. Like, I walked like seven miles. And, uh, but I was determined I was going to walk that seven miles. I wasn't going to get in that truck with him. 
And, uh, and that just kind of put a seed of bitterness in my heart. Like, I didn't even know. And I think I kind of started like a four or five year war with my parents at that point. But I didn't really, I wasn't aware of that. Like that I was doing that. And so, um, and that's what's happening here with David. He's had an expectation. And when you're a teenager, life's difficult, right? You're making a bunch of transitions. You're becoming a man. And you're dealing with a lot of peer pressure and trying to fit in and all those things. And you have an expectation that the people, there's people in your corner. But then that's when you can get hurt. And so, but I still had uh, responsibility to honor my father and mother, regardless of what they do. I can't control that, <laughs> but I can um, do something about how I respond, and I did not respond well, and that's what David's in jeopardy of here, and remember the scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but let it but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so, yeah, we have to be careful not to take that up and try to defend ourselves. That's not for us to do. So secondly, someone else must bear our shame. We need a mediator. I'm going to read verses 23 through 27. When Abigail saw David... She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before, before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now let your enemies and those who seek, who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So Abigail comes before David and she humiliates herself. And she declares the most important statement in this chapter. Right? This is ba basically right in the middle and she makes the most important declaration when she says, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And then she, be then she begins to uh, pronounce curses on, on David's enemies. Um, Nabal's name actually means fool. And so she's like, let all of your enemies be fools like Nabal. And, and then she brings up to David her propitiating gift. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. And so she, in this instance, is trying to restore David's honor. He's been shamed. Him and his men have been shamed by Nabal. And now Abigail is going to come and pay David the honor that is due him. 
and she's gonna say, if there's any shame in this situation, let it be on me. Let it be on me. So we can see in, in Abigail's actions, we see Christ, the mediator who has proclaimed over all those who believe in him, um, you know, let this guilt be on me. In Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. So Christ suffered and bore our shame in our place. Just as Nabal here is trying to save, she's trying to save every member, every male member of her household. She's saying, you know what? Whatever you're going to do, do it to me. The end of that section says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus hasn't just taken our guilt and shame. We see that he bore that on the cross, but he's done so much more. He sent his good works ahead of us before the Father. His miracles, his healing, his compassion for the poor, and his obedience unto death. Those were the propitiating gifts that Christ has sent ahead of us to God. We get credit for the righteous life that he lived. He sent those propitiating gifts. And not only that, he arrived before God the Father in person to declare over all who trusted him, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So he sent his works, and then he came himself, and he bore our sin and shame. And finally, Jesus ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. So he did more than just bear our guilt and shame. He offered gifts to make God happy with us. And then he gave himself to be punished for our sin. My mom was always a tireless mediator for me <laughs> with my dad and with the schools and with whoever else I was in trouble with all the time. And so, um, yeah, I don't know how many principals and vice principals she yelled at, but, um, but the problem wasn't them, it was me. And so there wasn't anything that she could do to really fix that bitterness that was in my heart that I had uh, because of the fence that I had taken against my dad. And so, but fortunately, Jesus bore our shame on the cross and he can identify with our shame and our hurt. Because he, he himself suffered and yet was without sin. Our eyes are open through the petitions of a mediator. And so we see here Abigail petitioning David. She's begging him not to do this. She's begging for the lives of all of her male servants, of her husband. And she's the only one in this 
this whole incident that sees things for what they are and can do something about it. The servants know. They know like their, their master's a fool, but they, they don't have it in their power to give anything. And so Abigail is the wife of, of Nabal and, and owner of all that he has, both of them, can, can tell the servants, hey, take all this stuff over there, put it out ahead of me because we got to go and try to make this right. And so how is it that Abigail can see clearly enough to turn David aside? Well, David's only met this guy for one day, and he's ready to kill him. But Abigail has lived under this fool the whole time she's been married, right? And she's had to deal with this in her own heart. She's had to deal with this for a long time and know how to live without sinning against God by trying to do something about being married to this fool. And so in a sense, Abigail doesn't, the plank in Abigail's eye has been removed. She can now take the speck of dust out of David's eye about how he's going to try to, to do something about this fool Nabal. And so she begs, she begs forgiveness and Abigail then blesses David and reminds him who God has called him to be. And she even suggests that all of David's enemies will be flung out like he threw the rock at Goliath. Like I, you know, she's like, I hope all your enemies are flung out like a, like a stone from a sling. And so she's uh, petitioning him, begging him. She's, she's honoring him. And, and yet she's telling David, don't try to save yourself. Like, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so, in a moment of rage, David forgets who he was. He forgets who he was. Firstly, that he's nobody. That he's the eighth son of a shepherd. Right? He's, he's, an, he's no one. And yet, at the same time, he's someone. He's the chosen king of Israel by no merit of his own. God elects him. He picks him. He fills him with his spirit, anoints him as king. David becomes the slayer of the Philistine giant Goliath. He's the killer of his ten thousands. He's the most famous man in Israel, all by the choosing and the grace of God. And so in that moment, he forgets both those things, that he's no one and that he's someone. And I would say, just an exhortation to the church, that we have to remember the same thing, that we're, that we're nobody, we're no one. That, we're, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made you alive together with Christ. He's, he's risen us all from the dead. He's caused us to be born again. But we were dead. And so we are no one, but by grace he's made us somebody. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we have to be careful that we aren't offended and try to defend ourselves um, when we're wronged and forget who we are, that we're no one and yet we're someone in Christ. 
because of his grace. Likewise, Christ was nobody. He was a nobody. He was the son of a carpenter. And some claimed an Ill illegitimate son because they didn't believe in the divine conception, right? We don't even know who his dad is. So he's the son of the carpenter from, from Nazareth, which we know nothing good can come from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth, as the scripture says? So Christ, in a sense, is, is a, a, no one, but he's somebody because God declared that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he was filled with the, the spirit beyond measure. And he's called the faithful and true and the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet he humbly bore our sin and shame to the cross and suffered and died. But God raised him from the dead. So that's how, yeah, God eventually honored him, right? He honored him even after he endured all that stuff unjustly and he rose Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand and he has the name above all names. So probably 14 years, I think it was about 14 years after that incident with my dad, I went to a, a thing at church called Encounter Weekend, and it's where a bunch of leaders will fast and pray for weeks leading up to this event, and just that God would give some kind of uh, deliverance from something, you know, things in people's lives. Like, I didn't even really know what it was. It was just a church thing, and I was going to go to it, and it was like a retreat at Camp Mac or something, and I didn't even really understand what I was getting myself into. So you go and spend like an hour in worship, and then people started getting up and sharing testimonies of difficult things they had been through and how God had set them free. And then we go to this room, and we we're sitting in this room. It didn't have any windows, and the guy leading the group didn't say anything. He's just like, he's not saying anything at all. And so we're just four or five guys sitting in a room saying nothing. And then I'm like, well, I'm going to start talking. And so... <laughs> Because it gets uncomfortable after a while. And I started sharing this story. I, even, I don't know why I shared that story. And I was, by the end of it, I was crying so hard, I, can't, I was just like shaking, you know, just sobbing. And then all the guys came and they put their hands on me and they're praying for me. And I had no idea that that incident had affected me that much. I, I didn't know. I was blind to it. And that's what happens, you know, our sin blinds us. And it took other people and the Holy Spirit to reveal that in, in my heart. And so this is, this is why Abigail's the only, she's the only one that sees in this situation. Nabal's a fool and David's just uh, blind with rage. Fortunately, Hebrews 7:23 or 7:23 through 25 says, "The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office." And this is talking about Christ, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so take comfort that Jesus is praying for you 
and that he's trying to lead you out of those, um, those sins that have blinded you. Lastly here, we cannot defend our own honor or save ourselves by our own hand. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 25, verse 36 through 44. Actually, I'm going to read verse 28 because I forgot that part. <laughs> Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of, from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and he has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience, for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me from this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For, as, for surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had been none left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought to him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition." And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing of all until morning light. And morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So David relents of killing Nabal because of Abigail's petitions and her gifts and her humility and, and restoring David's honor. And God vindicates David and Abigail by striking down Nabal. As you read the rest of this chapter, after Nabal's death, David actually sends men to Abigail and asks her to be his wife. Um, and so David repays Abigail honor for honor, and she becomes his wife. So we see here that through her mediation and through a little patience that God actually takes care of the problem. And so... As we look at this story, we can kind of identify with all the different, char all the different characters in, the, in this event, but um, I think the one that we most can identify with is Nabal. And by that I mean that each and every one of us have, have offended someone who is very, very powerful. We've offended a holy God, and we've brought shame on our Heavenly Father by how we've lived. And 
we're in desperate need of a mediator to say, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And so, if, if you're here today and you're in Christ, that's what Christ has done. He said, over you before God, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And if you're here today and you haven't put your hope and trust in Christ alone to save you from the wrath of God against your sin, then you need to learn from Nabal's life and don't live in unrepentance. Like, God is gracious. And we know the scripture says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's made, God has made a way for us to be forgiven and for someone else to bear our sin and shame. It reminds me of... Uh, and so how could it be that God would eternally punish us for things that don't seem that bad? And I like the, the analogy of, and many of you have heard it before, of what, what would be the consequence if I were to go up and punch a stranger? You know, there would be, I mean, maybe if he presses charges against me, I would spend some time in jail. I'd probably get out pretty fast. But what if I punch my dad? There's going to be consequences for, in my relationship for a really long time, there's more consequence. Now, if I go up and punch a police officer, what kind of, what's going to happen? I'm going to have a greater charge. I'm going to face a greater penalty. And then if, what if I went up, somehow broke through security at the White House and attacked Joe Biden? Like, what would happen? Like, now what if I go and attack the the ruler of North Korea, who they worship as a god. It's infallible. What's going to happen? So whoever I shame, if I shame somebody that's way above me in honor, they always say that you can tell who has power in a society by who you can't oppose, like who you can't say something about without there being consequence. And so that's why no one in our country has a lot of power. Um, because you can say anything about anyone and get away with it. But that's not how it works with God, because he defends his name. And so I would just implore you, implore you to ask God to forgive you for your sin and for the shame that you brought on his name. You were created in his image, created to worship him and you've been looking for salvation everywhere else but in him. So after, after that weekend and God just kind of revealing me in me how I had not honored my father and mother, um, I basically just went and talked to him about it. I just went and kind of said, here's something that God's showed me and working in my heart and I said you know what I I uh, I failed as a son I failed to honor you how God has called me to honor you and I asked them to forgive me for that because that's all I can do that's all that I can control when someone has offended me is my response that's it I don't have any power over anyone else and so and Abigail illustrates that so well in this story. 
that here she lives with this fool that David wants to kill the first time he meets him. And yet she's patiently, patiently living with him for years. And, and God does something about it. And she doesn't try to take it into her own hands. And so God really did restore my relationship with my parents. I have a good relationship with my dad and my parents. And, and yeah, it just kind of shows that that we need to ask Jesus to save us and to save us from trying to save ourselves, trying to defend our honor, trying to defend our name. And, yeah, we don't want to be unrepentant like Nabal. <laughs> yeah, because that, that leads to death. So in closing, I just want to remind us that, that when we're vulnerable, and we expect help, right? Like we're in a vulnerable place in life and we have this expectation that there's this person that can help me and they don't, uh, they don't help us. Uh, we, can come be, we can become bitter takers, right? Because they didn't meet our expectation. We needed help. They didn't help us. So we have to watch out for that and guard our hearts. Um, and it's hard to do because most of the times I've been offended in my life is when I really needed somebody and they let me down. And so... And so we don't want to just be bitter and take things into our own hands. And because someone else has to bear our shame. Someone else has to mediate for us. Not just before God, but even before our, our family, our relationships. We need Jesus to fix those things too. And, and our eyes can only be opened through uh, the petitions of a mediator, prayers of another person, somebody with an outside perspective. And Jesus has that the best. He lives and intercedes for us um, forever. And we can't defend our own honor or save ourselves by our own hands. We need salvation belongs to the Lord, not to me, not to anyone else. So we can't lose perspective. Um, just because someone wrongs us doesn't give us the right to retaliate. We never have the right as Christians to trade evil for evil. Jesus bore our, but fortunately, Jesus bore our sin and our shame on the cross. We don't have to live under that anymore. And he can identify with our hurt. He identifies with us in our pain because he's the only one that suffered unjustly for his entire life. He was faithful and obedient even to the point of death. And we have a great intercessor that's more that has more powerful prayers than Abigail and makes way better arguments before the Father for us. And so we, need to, so we need to ask Jesus to save us and to save us from trying to save ourselves because we can't do it. Because there's salvation found in no other name but the name of Christ. He's the only one that can represent us before God. That's it. That's the way God is provided. So if you would, just bow your heads and pray with me as I close here. Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord, that you are gracious and merciful toward us. Father, even though we have brought shame upon your name at decisions that we've made in ways that we haven't honored you, and yet, Lord, you have saved us. Lord, you have provided a way for us to escape your wrath. Lord, not only escape your wrath, but you've made us your sons and daughters. You've adopted us into your family. Lord, you've made us a royal priesthood and a holy nation so we can proclaim 
your excellencies to all those around us. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to set your people free, free from sins that people have been trying to save themselves from. Lord, that they would look to you and that you would bring complete um, healing, Lord. I pray that you would take the plank out of our eye so that we can be able to take the speck of dust out of the eyes of those that live around us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it wouldn't go out void, but it would accomplish what you sent it forth to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.